Welcome to the World Architecture Festival podcast. This series features recordings from the annual festival, where architects and commentators discuss the latest challenges and innovations in the industry. Make sure you subscribe to always receive the latest episode and also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at WorldArchFest. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the second evening keynote of WAF 2017. Um, I think this is going to be a fascinating occasion because we've deployed um, an old 1960s technique of sort of role reversal for the presentation this evening. Um, Pierre de Meuron, partner in Herzog and de Meuron, um, is going to take on kind of the role of critic uh, to talk about the Elbe Philharmonie uh, building in Hamburg, this rather extraordinary, wonderful building. But to present the building, and therefore, in a sense, being the architect, uh, we've asked the critic Charles Jenks to take on that role. Now, Charles has been coming to World Architecture Festival for 10 years and has been a massive supporter of the event, uh, both by appearing and kind of intellectual support uh, behind the scenes. So it's a double header, ladies and gentlemen, and to kick us off, please welcome Charles Jenks. Thank you, Paul. Um, it's always a pleasure to be at WAF, uh, one of the most interesting forums uh, in architecture today, if not the most open, pluralistic, and um, multi-headed. Uh, as the architect of this building, you can see all architects love understatement, don't they? Uh, and I think Jeremy Melvin ended the last um, session saying that the Philharmonie is perhaps the most interesting performance building of the last year. But as the architect, I have to say, it's probably the most important building of the last 10 years and maybe the most important postmodern building of the last 30 years or perhaps the most important postmodern building ever created. Uh, architectural understatement. Um, that, uh, so Jeremy said, well, I'm, I don't believe in hyperbole. Uh, I said, hyperbolic? Yes, he said, not hyperbolic paraboloids. I don't believe in overstatement. But as the architect, I want to overstate my case and argue that like a lot of things that take 50 years, a new paradigm in architecture takes 50 years to work out. And for many reasons, I'll give you five or six, this is a key building of the last 10 years. That's my argument. And I will look at it in the context of what is the new normal in uh, commissioning buildings around the globe. That is the billion dollar building is become the new normal, especially in the last five or so years. And this building, the American Embassy in London, which will be finished next year, is over a billion dollars. And you can see it's a white cube with um, uh, the green ornamental white uh, 
Brie Soleil or sunbreakers on the sides looking rather like automobile uh, front um, insignias like Mercedes-Benz or, or Chrysler, more like a Chrysler white, surrounding a, a, a box, basically, a blank box with uh, a green credentials on the outside, which won a competition and is in, as you can see it in this rendering, a, a sea of other boxes. So uh, postmodernism, of course, uh, disputed in all sorts of ways the modernist dumb box and introduced a new series of ideas. And in the last 15 or 20 years, postmodernism, which has disappeared by name, has been res resurrected by almost all modern architects in terms of the iconic building. So the icon, the billion dollar icon has become the new normal. And I show you one which opened last week by Jean Nouvel the, um, in Abu Dhabi, which is of course a museum um, partly of Abu Dhabi and partly of the Louvre. It's called the New Louvre. Um, Nouvelle Louvre, you could call it in French, and it's definitely a postmodern building, at least in its uh, double coding of a traditional Arabic um, uh, fretwork or um, that kind of screening in the dome. It's a 180 meter dome over 55 white cubes designed as a series of vernacular or contextual Arab uh, buildings put close together to create squares, streets, and shade. So when this week, last week, uh, Jean Nouvel was interviewed by the Financial Times, he said, yes, of course, I'm a contextual architect. I'm a contextual architect. And then he went on to describe the building in contextual terms or in postmodern terms. And it is, in a sense, a traditional dome. He used um, religious words, spiritual words, and revived the metaphor, which has been very constant in architecture since 1960s. Uh, the museum as a cathedral, as the new cathedral. And of course, if you're spending a billion dollars, you've got to think about the symbolism. And so when describing this building, he said about the dome, he said, you know, made out of various metallic elements, aluminiums, stainless steel, and others, completely hides the structure. He said the structure is completely hidden, which it is, because he wanted to create a totally symbolic building. Totally symbolic, that's what he said. Those are his words, you can read. Um, so in a sense, this is a double-coded postmodern building with a traditional and modern mixture of two codes, at least two. You could call it POMO rather than postmodern because it, in a, the obvious mixture is so complete that it, um, there's no kind of uh, intermediate uh, symbolism. It's total symbolism on the dome, which is, hides the structure and which represents the cosmos, um, stars, uh, shining monuments, um, a, a, a dappled light of trees on the inside, provides shade and 
like his building in Paris, is a reference to the Arab architecture of the past. So my argument partly is that, of course, with the iconic building becoming the new normal, the billion-dollar building becoming the new normal, and even symbolism and contextual architecture becoming the new normal, how does that relate historically to um, modernism, late modernism, and postmodernism? Well, one of the arguments really surely is how it relates to history. And my argument is that the time city, the city of time, the city that grows like DNA over millions of years, uh, geologically and then culturally, is epitomized in this Noli plan of Rome, showing the relation between the public realm, the private realm, the semi-public realm, the spaces within public buildings, which are carved out, and the background tissue. This became the postmodern idea of contextualism in the late 60s and early 1970s with a whole lot of architects, among them Jim Sterling and his buildings for Dusseldorf and then for Stuttgart, which was built, this building in, for Stuttgart, the Neues Staatsgalerie, which was the postmodern building of the 80s. And my argument is that uh, the Elbe Philharmonie is uh, like the New Staatsgalerie, a time city. That is, a city. it's a mixture of codes, cross-coding, multiple codes, traditional and modern codes, which, like uh, this German building, nestles into the city at the same time standing out from it. So when Sterling designed this, of course, the museum is cathedral, the, 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 the museum which becomes the new spiritual and religious center of uh, pub the public realm, has to do a lot of work symbolically and contextually. What Sterling does here so uh, interestingly is to take the rusticated alternating masonry of the Stuttgart past and mix it with the vernacular white architecture and also, of course, the high-tech architecture around the entrance, which you see in red and blue. And then he takes the entrance uh, and he transforms that into the lighting elements which take you through the uh, walk. Uh, the interior open piazza, which wraps you into the vernacular in back. So this time city, this time building, what became the most important building of that decade, and the Elbe Philharmonie, is, I think, its natural successor. Um, mixing these codes and mixing the pop uh, codes of, let's say, the high-tech Pompidou Center and the traditional classical codes and a whole series of other ones. You see the hyperbolic paraboloid there in green uh, in the midground. So the building is a city building, a contextual building, and it was Jim Sterling's most popular building. Uh, as you see in this uh, photograph I took of Jim at one of the openings in 1984 when he was surrounded by a whole lot of young uh, adolescents in red and blue and green, um, multiple color clothes that were very vibrant and very pop. 
in a way. That's one of the reasons uh, that they, when they, when I asked them, when I talked to the young, they were the ones who said, oh, it's, uh, it's exactly, exactly like the Pompidou Center. Um, I interviewed some older people and they said, no, no, it's just like Schinkel's architecture in Berlin. And so you could see it spoke in multiple languages in a coherent way, which was uh, related to the city. Now, if you jump to the Elbphilharmonie, my argument is it's another time building, time city, big, big building, uh, just a little bit less than a billion dollars in cost. Um, whenever it's published, by the way, for the last 10 or 12 years, the cost of the building has been part of the message uh, in the architectural press and the popular press. It's in Hamburg. Um, uh, Hamburg, the great center of the Hanseatic League, you know, the greatest trading center of the Northern Sea uh, between the Baltics and Britain, uh, where trade went east-west and uh, really made the North a center. The Hanseatic League uh, had its center at Hamburg, and so its uh, cultural background was connected with trade, very open city. Um, and it's on the Elbe River. And so if you think of these things, this background of the city, in building this uh, very expensive building, <clears throat> the symbolism of what it signifies to the people of Hamburg is mixed up with, of course, being the center of a city which has more bridges and more warehouses than Venice and Amsterdam combined, believe it or not. Uh, that is, it's the most mercantile city, the most open city of Germany, in a way. And it was heavily bombed in the Second World War. So if postmodernism is something about the past as tragedy of, of the Holocaust and destruction of modernity, then this building uh, not only is a time building, but it's one which acknowledges that past, as I'll show you in different ways. Um, it's also in a key place in the Elbe and the North Sea. And that is it occupies a promontory rather like Lower Manhattan or the Dogana, which was the center of the mercantile empire of the Venetians, which is picked out in the gold ball, as you see. The Dogana at the point, just as uh, the Elbe Philharmonic uh, occupies that triangular point. Um, the Dogana signifies the wealth and being of the citizens of Venice. Right next to it, of course, is a monument, the Salute, uh, the great uh, church, Baroque church, which was built uh, after the Black Plague, after the plague destroyed half of the citizens of Venice. So you see two monuments, two icons, as it were, one economic and the other religious, uh, being juxtaposed to that fabric of, of the private realm. And you can see in the distance the same way the, this language of private and public uh, unifies Venice. So when uh, Herzog and de Meuron were asked to do this uh, building in, in Hamburg, um, they were also working on another building, which was finished first in uh, Madrid, which, as you can see from this analytical slide I've done, is a 
musical um, building. It's an extrusion of the site with an old brick 19th century warehouse below, extruded straight up. And as you read up the facade, you can see it's divided into six melodies, reading horizontally as a melodic line does in music. And yet, if you divide it uh, along a vertical section, you can see it's a rhythmical bass system of A, B, A, B, A, B, B, A, B, and then a syncopation of two modernist windows uh, collaged into that double melodic background. The top built out of uh, iron, which is rusted, which relates to, again, the um, Moorish architecture at the very top and transforms into an urban architecture as it goes down and is urban at the bottom. So this kind of piggyback building, which was uh, canonic to postmodernism in the 60s and 70s, when architects thought about relating to the past by building over and inside a building, and yet respecting the past to transform it, was in Herzog and Meuron's work when they thought about putting it on the most prime site, uh, a triangular site that sticks out into the uh, Hanseatic League. From one side, you can see this uh, high-tech, glossy, slick-tech building over the brick base, black from one side, uh, from this side, black and white like a dark sea with foam waves. And then you just go around it and you see the same side turning white. So it's a very visual uh, celebration of the way the light of the sea changes depending on the time of day. The facade has this wonderful quality of actually changing from black to white to blue as you go around it with these waves taking the sea, the foaming sea, the uh, undulating waves, uh, which of course are whipped up by the wind, taking cosmic signs and making an architecture of frozen music out of it. If you look at those waves, they're very tiny waves, they're medium-sized waves, wavelets, and wavelets, as the wind goes through, turn into big waves, and they turn into uh, giant uh, stormy waves. So look at those window sizes, those fractal windows going, scaling all the way down to the small and to the large. Another idea that uh, they take in this building is that of the architectural promenade. I show you Le Corbusier's Villa Savoie to show you the free plan and an idea that Rem has labeled the free section because it is the free plan and the free section which are used in this building and which really unite the building as a whole metaphor of waves and music uh, as well as an architectural promenade from the bottom through the building uh, to up an escalator to the piazza level uh, 60 meters up and into the enclosed public realm uh, which is open also on the outside perimeter and then up some more uh, stairs and uh, shifting spaces to the heart of the scheme. The um, famous metaphor of Hans Sharoon worked out in this city in 1964 at the Philharmonie, that is the vineyard of people at a symphony where the vineyard is under a pitched roof. So like a postmodernist, uh, the architects 
except that this metaphor of vineyards of people coming to a concert is uh, a word of the new architecture, a word that Frank Gehry picks up and, from Sharoon and then Renzo Piano, and almost every architect now accepts like a Doric column as a new word of architecture. In other words, there's a ability uh, to absorb uh, stereotypes and words of a conventional language. You go up on that architectural promenade, in up, up an escalator, and you see all of these little uh, glistening circular shapes around you and overhead, uh, lit in a strange way. And amazingly, as you go up, the elevator, the escalator curves down. It's the first curving down escalator in the world, and it gives you a kind of expectation that they'll be full of other surprises. But these other surprises are transformations of circles and those little disks you saw. So there's a kind of coherence uh, of, of ideas through the whole building, which make it a complexity that Jean Nouveau's uh, billion dollar building didn't reach. You see that on the circles at the top, which remind you of those that follow you through. And when you get to that piazza, which is halfway up the building above the brick base, it opens out and the city is pulled in by a series of views, uh, large views out of the cranes, of the other warehouses that weren't bombed, of those that were destroyed, and the amazing mixed fabric of Hamburg, rather like Berlin. There's a plan of how that public piazza space uh, opens out at opposite views across uh, the center, and how the stairs of the public realm change from escalator, from a single tube, to a kind of a processional space, and then to a series of different walkways, some of which uh, come out in these grand public views of, of the city itself. So like Sterling's Stuttgart building, it performs the city and it focuses on the city past and it takes you up through the, the middle of the past, changing its color and feeling from serious architecture to a kind of musical pop architecture, turning ultramarine and purple and day glow and vibrant and uh, rather kitsch at moments, in other words, using multiple languages again, uh, changing like a chameleon. And it brings up the fact that Hamburg, aside from being a great city of the Hanseatic Leagues, is also a great musical city where uh, all sorts of different music is celebrated. In other words, it isn't just high classical music, although there are three philharmonic orchestras and an opera, which, uh, is world, which are world-class. So it has, if you like, high cultural music in it. But it also has the most number of musicals ever put on in any German city, and that's a lot of musicals. Since 1986, since Cats, they've had uh, many, many uh, musicals. And musical genre is, of course, a kind of mixture of high-low. It's sort of mid-cult, but enjoyable. And then they have a thing called Hamburg music, like hot dog music, which is alternative pop music. Then they have pop, whoops, excuse me, then they have pop, which is a, uh, 
an interesting uh, kind of pop which comes originally from the Beatles who started off not only in Liverpool in 1960 but for two years came to Hamburg to, to sing. So the Beatles pop transformed into other kinds of pop music. And of course they've got all the heavy metal and other kinds of music in addition. So you could see the architecture performs this uh, mixture of high-low and uh, serious and pop, and even has overtones of expressionist architecture or that of the constructivists in the 20s, the modern architects who projected on the bottoms of clouds as they passed over uh, a kind of uh, series of outdoor um, uh, uh, public um, images. Uh, or even uh, under the Nazis, Albert Speer, his, it is often said his greatest to, uh, contribution to architecture was his use of searchlights, columns of light reflected up uh, for Nazi parades. So here were these green and blue and um, over-the-top pulsating colors you see this building celebrating the public realm at its opening in January 2017. A public architecture, uh, not a cathedral to art, but a cathedral, if you like, to music, in a musical city, in a musical country. And it raises the question, is this building more than performance? Is it a performance which has a kind of justification of the billion dollars or the almost billion dollars. Well, if you look at it as a public building that you, the public can come up to, on, up to this level, and uh, experience the city, then like their building in Madrid, it's one that is a much about the city and the public realm as it is about music. It sort of plays both games. This is a view through that piazza to the big, hall for music on the left and a smaller one to the right. Up the stairs you go as it were climbing a mountain of, of, um, of wood and uh, acoustic tiles and light and railings up this very abstract but fascinating uh, language of architecture bifurcating uh, maybe late for the opera, maybe late for a concert so in a panic so guides have to tell you, go to the left or the right and take two more rights and go left. Um, an interesting way of treating uh, an audience by breaking it up into uh, diverse circulation routes in which the diverse circulation becomes itself part of the architecture and part of the spectacle, just as it was in the most expensive building of 1874 by Charles Garnier uh, the Paris Opera House, the, um, the building which was for its time the most iconic building uh, in France of the, of, the, of the Second Empire, a building which Charles Garnier, the architect, writes a book about and describes it as interestingly in a metaphor. He says, you know, we've had to create here the campfire of the French nation. Just like the campfire in prehistory gathered together the people of, of the country, so today music has that function. And we have designed, or I have designed, he said, a place where all the classes will come together. 
the, the poor, those who just love music and who have very little money, and the super rich who will come. So if you think about this as a typical uh, building task of the 19th century and today, when the same class divisions and economic divisions underlie uh, our society and our icons and divide people, you can see that Garnier is trying to weave together these the different uh, groups, different economic strata, and he uses a metaphor of the spectacle, like the passage in an Italian Mediterranean town, the passage in the evening where people look at each other and display themselves. And he says, you know, this is a campfire in which the Rothschilds, the richest people in Europe, and the Napoleon III, the emperor for a few days, and the people of France come together around the campfire and celebrate the nation. When Le Corbusier looked at this building, he thought it was the greatest lie that the Beaux-Arts, Ecole Beaux-Arts ever did. He said, he said in criticizing, he said, it's a ridiculous building which has uh, an iconography that no one understands except it signifies the grave death. And um, it's in this question, really, of if you're going to spend a lot of money today, what are you going to spend it on and what kind of iconography are you going to use with conviction for your icons? So my argument finally is that these vineyards of people are so designed that you can see across the way, you can go up and wander through the buildings uh, and wander across tiers from one area to another. It's a kind of meandering path inside the campfire and its fractal shapes, its fractals allowed by the computer is perhaps one of the most interesting aspects of the postmodern production system that was prophesied in the 1960s but only has come on stream uh, more recently. Because what this building is showing is that the mass production of modernism really has led to mass customization and finally to an architecture that can be as rich as the scaled architecture of previous periods, that is, handicraft uh, architecture. And it brought together, in its opening, the people of Germany, uh, the people of Hamburg, the, the people who built it here, and Angela Merkel, who you see there, raising the question, you know, it is a kind of campfire, finally, that people can understand. It raises the question, would this ever happen with St. Teresa maybe in Britain? Um, would the British in Brexit mode ever support a cathedral of music? Would the public realm support it? Um, to ask the question is to raise the issue of what we spend our money on and how culture occupies that role. So these shots of the opening show the words of Charles Garnier in the 19th century being realized finally in an iconography that people can understand and which made by the computer these uh, individual 10,000 panels with their one million shells, acoustic shells, which were worked out by Japanese acousticians 
is an actual uh, rendition of architecture as frozen music and one that shows where postmodern computer production really can be if you have the patience, the money, the care, and the belief in the difficult whole of a metaphor which runs throughout the entire building from the small detail to the building as a whole. An image of its city, the Hanseatic League, the water, and music. As the architect, I want to congratulate myself. Thank you. As a critic, um, I'm not so sure whether I will be as precise as uh, Charles with his work. Um, this is a spontaneous uh, event for me. So I didn't quite know what Charles would present. I knew, I knew his five points. So five points, not of architecture, but of his uh, presentation. So I prepared a few ideas and I'd like to react on this um, very spontaneously. Um, so, you mentioned money. Yes, this is about money. And, of course, as a critic, um, you follow very well, you know what um, is being done with mainly also with public money. Of course, there were a few funds, but very little. But in this case, the majority of the money came from the city and from its citizens, so through tax money. So the press is very alert and looks what it means. Somehow, and this makes, I think, the story of this building more interesting is that with all the pains that the, the inhabitants, the citizens, as they feel also themselves. Hamburg, as you know, is eine Hansestadt, is a state city. They would never ask money from the government, from the national government. They try to make their own things by themselves. So you see, I'm a critic from Hamburg. So I also praise the the, the attitude what the whole community of Hamburg had towards this dramatic evolvement of the, of the project. There were many, many moments where there was no light and no clear building, you know, you could look at. So it was very misty, foggy, very long time. But nevertheless, now, as the building is finished, um, everyone, or most of them, a majority, but also more than Hamburg, also Germany, is like quite proud that this building has been completed, which was not at all something which was granted. It was completed and it was right that in this case, the building was completed. Of course, we know the building is much more expensive, expensive that 
it should cost. There were all this time and all that time, all these legal issues, they cost a lot of money. But nevertheless, in this case, the people, uh, the people cover and support this, this effort. And this is the best thing that can happen for a building, for a public building, being supported by its inhabitant. Of course, it's for music. Um, and the building is a, the starting point of the building is music. And as Charles already explained, this central stage and with the people all around. So creating a sort of an identity for the listeners, for the viewers also, as music is not only an acoustical experience, but as music is also a visual experience. The building is in the center of the metropolitan area of Hamburg. There is something is like uh, missing. I don't know whether is no. There is no pointer, but it is in the middle. Understanding that the Elbphilharmonie is in the middle of the picture. So you have in the north, you have like the city with its citizens, with churches, housing, um, offices, etc. And on the south of the Elbe River, you see in the middle of the image, you have the harbor, the second largest harbor in Europe. And now Elbphilharmonie is in the middle, is in the middle of this, all, all this urban era. Next. This project started as a private initiative and this is the, uh, the first sketch that has been done, understanding that the Elbphilharmonie is on top of an existing building, which was a storage building. And with this early sketch, there was already, like the whole story, the whole story of the building, the whole essence of the building is somehow depicted and in content in this, in this sketch. Understanding that public buildings and where do you spend money? Um, Herzog and Dömeron did another project in Brazil, in Natal, in the north, in a shanty town, so in a sort of a favela. And they proposed a huge roof. And this roof is like acting similar as the Elbphilharmonie. So bringing all the people together and also making this life, this communal life, within this favela, making, making this an interesting and very dense exchange and communal experience between all the people, understanding how difficult it can be in those favelas, understanding um, all the difficulties with drugs, uh, prostitution, etc. So the Elbphilharmonie is like inserting a needle into the body, like in Chinese traditional medicine, you use needles 
to like to radiate into the body. So the same thing can be done also with architecture, punctually. And building like uh, the Neue Staatsgalerie in Stuttgart certainly also have this potential and had this potential. Now I'm, as a critic, and as a critic of the early 80s, I was not so, so happy or so exuberant about this project. On the contrary, I thought it was also quite difficult to use, especially in a museum where you have visual experience, to use such bright colors like the acid green. This may be possible on the outside, but when you get into the building, you are like saturated almost by this color. And I understand this as a difficult um, surrounding, a difficult element to which disturbs somehow, almost, the perception of the viewer in the museum. Beijing, the national stadium, is of course also something like a punctual intervention within a huge city body. And having here in the north of the, of, uh, the forbidden city to have the Olympic Park with the stadium, which also became something that was like taken by people, by manufacturers, by brand makers, also by things like that. So it became this iconic figure of the, of the bird's nest was like inhaled and by, the, by its inhabitant. Multifunctionality. If I take modern movement and modern city planning, I understand this as more as rather something that fragments or makes difference between working, living, shopping, etc. So there was like a separation, a fragmentation of the city. And on the contrary, here at the Elbphilharmonie, you have like a stacking. So all different kinds, every color is another function. So you have like the parking in the old structure. You have, um, you have educating, educating music, you have housing, you have living, you have shopping, etc. So all the urban activities are somehow here concentrated within a building, which is within also a neighborhood which is very alive and has been transformed. This is an old image, but has been transformed in the old harbor and has becoming now a part of the city itself. Also similar London, Tate, modern is certainly also one of those interventions in a large city where with one building you can have a huge effect, positive effect I would say, onto a body of a city starting like somewhere where people didn't go, they will not go to Southwark, but with a Tate, with a cultural institution, similar to Hamburg with a music institution, to like to give new energies to this neighborhood. And also connecting like the two riversides, the northern side of London with the southern part. And also discovering from the top of uh, the Tate, discovering St. Paul's across the river. 
the promenade, Charles, you described this as the architect, and I understand that the promenade is an important way to live a building, to, to make people feel like they will be attracted to go somewhere. So the attraction of this building, and this was from the beginning, was like a condition to make this building for everyone. So it's not just a music hall, which most of the music halls, where you have the one function, which is music, listening to music, playing music. In this case, the building also attracts the people on the so-called plaza, about 35 meters, about sea level, which is higher than all the horizon of the roofs of the city of Hamburg. And creating now this movement with this curved um, escalator where you don't see where it leads. So somehow, like old bridges in France, in Par Paris, the Pont Neuf, or in Blois, it is even more extreme, that you have a bridge that is curved like a, a back which is curving and you don't see from one end of the river, from the bridge, you don't see the other end. So you go somewhere, we don't quite know where to go to. And then arriving to this window, which was existing in the existing building, and looking down, looking towards the sea, towards like the Elbe flows away from the building. And then arriving on the plaza and having from there a 360 degrees look around the all sides of the, of, of the building are attractive. So you can walk ar around and you see the whole city of Hamburg and you see it together with the harbor. You see it from a completely new, new, po new point, like in the Tate. Towards the harbor. And also having this, this foyer where the people meet. So this also is a congregation, a congregation where people meet, where people come together. So the architecture is something where people is for the people, just for the people. And being under the, the, um, the volume of the music hall and going up, like as you see where you have the lambs, those, this is the underside of the hanging music hall. And again, from the foyer, you see um, towards the north, towards the city, and towards the south, towards um, the, um, the, the harbor. The campfire, I think, um, I think this is an interesting explanation from the architect to, to try to understand, you know, what are you doing? Because you're always in a kind of a social and cultural context. And I would say, if I take an example, a football stadium in, in Barcelona or Madrid, in a Latin American context, culture, football culture, is certainly a different one from one in Germany or from one in England. What I want to say is that a same function, like a music hall or like a football stadium, can have in different cultural conditions or environment a completely different look. And in this case, the question of the, of the central stage, um, like in 
now here in Beijing, where you also have a sort of a campfire where everyone is sitting around the arena and dancing and playing Go. Also, this is a sort of a reversed campfire where you are below, where you are under, under something, under a dome like the Eiffel Tower, where people congregate. They go there. They feel like this should be the place where you go, where you make your Instagram photograph, etc. And the stadium in Beijing has also this congregation of bringing people together as it is not only something for Olympics, for, for, for sports, as this is just for three weeks, but the building became much, something much more. Again, this congregation, this coming together of the, the campfire symbol. Again, fire. The, the Tate with the turbine hall has certainly also something like a, a, public, a public space where people come together, being this, in this case, after the transformation, as you know, the Tate was an industrial building, a power station, and has been transformed into a museum, and with this central space, which is um, one of the largest covered space in, in London, but is not first a museum, but is something where you go and you come together and you meet. And the idea of this central space and having something in the center, the fire, or a play, or a game, or music, or whatever, and the people sitting around. I think this is a very interesting spatial condition. Also, the Scala in, in Milano has certainly also this campfire atmosphere, but being maybe a, like a U-shaped campfire, and not the really campfire with having a 360-degree at, attention. And developing, I know that the architects had from the beginning had like uh, understood that the typology of the central stage was the one that was required. As in Hamburg, they already have the shoebox with the lights, Halle. So they wanted to have a different, another typology, so to say, the central stage. And there are so many different varieties, and there was a test, you know, which one is now the best campfire. And this has been done by very uh, old school, what I would say, analogous means and methods, but also a lot with the computer. And it was like a game between the acoustics, the view lines, but also there was always the idea of making the space as compact as possible so that the people are as close as possible to the action, to the music in the center, so that they just concentrate on this action. And the interaction between the music and the people as, is as intense as possible. Again, the comparison to a football stadium, there is always the game and the spectators around. If the game is bad, then the spectators hmm, are not maybe not so so vibrant 
And on the contrary, there is, there can be an interaction, an influence of the spectators onto the game. So this, again, I think this analogy to the sitting around something and bringing this communal, this communal sense of listening to the same music and having each individual his own, like, own emotions and own sensitive reactions. So that's it. Now this is uh, not a communal and not a campfire. So uh, this was more a monologue and uh, one direction. And I'm very happy now to have this interaction with Charles. Thank you. Let's go over there. Well, that, um, very good imperson impersonating me. You're a good impersonator of a critic. I'm trying to be an architect, you're trying to be a critic. We try. Um, let me ask you some questions about um, the cost, because I know the cost of the building was at Gonna explode. <laughs> uh. I know the cost of the building partly came because it was over the water, and the previous building there, the warehouse, had 1,111 piles, you know, like Venice, it's built on piles, this part. And you added 680 piles, so that's 1,700 piles holding up this building. And obviously, part of the cost, when you, when you think of what you're doing abstractly, to keep an old building usually saves cost, right? We, we think, well, let's, let's build on top of a building and therefore save destruction and reuse a building. That usually makes sense. But when you build over water, and you must have uh, thought about this, uh, because the building stopped building in 2011, and you had two or three years where nothing happened. And it must have partly come from the very attempt to save the past, the warehouses, uh, which, in a way, the warehouse in, in uh, Hamburg is the building type, which makes Hamburg, isn't it? And so I can see ideologically and symbolically why you want to save the building. But you must have felt, after you saved the building, it's costing you so much money, uh, you uh, kind of tortured yourself. So. Hello. Um, so we switch role again now? Yeah, no, <laughs> okay. It's anything. Okay. Three times. Three times, yeah, yeah, three times. <clears throat> now, we are always very, like, say, active, proactive in speaking about also the difficult issues. And certainly, 
time and money in El Philharmonie is one of them, undoubtedly. And now if you ask now a specific question regarding the piling or the costs, I would say that generally or often, if you would say how much the building will cost at the end, they will, especially for public buildings, so for politicians, it will never be built. If this building had been under the care or under the management of a private institution, they would have stopped it. I think that's pretty sure. And in this case, there was like the will at the end to do it despite all of those difficulties. I think this makes the story of this building so interesting and so unique, so painful it is. Can you imagine when the mayor had to go in 2013 and go to the, to the, to the parliament and ask for 200 more millions? That was certainly not easy. But for them, there were like two possibilities. Either you go to court, and you know this will go 10 years or eight years or 12 years. And at the end, you have like a 50-50. You have no building and you have only losers. And in this case, the mayor of Hamburg, Olaf Scholz, was very smart in understanding and he could then convince his people. And he could also, as a, a, a matter of smart communication, he could make it understandable that this was the only solution. And now coming back to, your, to the piles. And of course, at the beginning, when you make this sketch, you have the, the storage building. And you know that the storage building is a very solid one. And you, will don't, you won't have all the goods in it, you know, because the goods are very heavy. So it's, if the goods are out, then you... And of, and of course, if you, you cannot know whether this is possible to have all the load of it on top of it. But in this case, I think it was good that we didn't know it, so that we were a little bit naive, I must admit, but sometimes naiveness of not knowing brings you like to um, the strong solutions. Okay. So uh, it reminds me that there's a lot of luck in architecture. You know, uh, you have to be very lucky to get a good client, to get the right building. You've been lucky several times with the Beijing Olympic building. Those commissions never come up, but you've got at least two in your life. That's incredible. And you know, even the delay was lucky. I, I'm sure that having two years to do nothing made you think, and what's so beautiful about the building, from my point of view as a critic, is that it's so well built and the details are so well thought through. So a building that takes time brings the culture together. And curiously, even the trauma of you know, a breakdown in divorce proceedings and getting divorced, you have, and you have a new relationship, you, You've, you can almost say that your pain you went through as, a, as the architect and the client, because of course it takes two. It takes society on the one hand and the architect to go through a relationship. So 
I'm, this is a metaphor about the relationship. You know, in history, in Italy and in Greece, the architect was a woman and the client was the man, okay? So the man fell in love with the woman and the man had to race after the woman. This is not Donald Trump. Um, and if it was a good relationship, after nine months, a building was born. If it was a bad relation, if there was no love, then the, you know, the building was stillborn. Okay, so this metaphor is interesting because one of the ideas of archeologists is that why did they build Stonehenge? Why did they build all these buildings? And the answer the archeologists are saying, in order to pull people together. It was the act of building, which is a verb. You have, it has to be a kind of passion. And I think in, you know, divorce and remarriage, there's a kind of passion. So you have to be lucky. You pick the right client, they picked you, but that doesn't happen very often. Mostly never. No, no, yeah, of course, I think the, comparison to, to the marriage is a, a very good one, as I believe that good buildings, and what is a good building? I think a good building is a building that when it is once it is handed over, it lives. It lives. You know, it's not something that is for the architect, but it's something for life, and for the life of the people, and especially if in public buildings. And I can say that there is no good buildings if there is not a good client. So the client is as important or even more important to pick up, but also to bring himself what, what, doesn't, what does he or she want or don't want. So this is, this is key for good architecture because architecture at the end um, is like a psychogram. I think a psychogram of the people who want to build something or a city. In the case now of Hamburg, I think it describes, it depicts the city of Hamburg and its inhabitant, you know, not the physical. The physical look of Hamburg is a result of all the different interventions of Hamburg people into build reality. And a, a building like the Elbphilharmonie tells a lot about the spirit which is in the city and which is not in another city, I would say. So in this case, it was only, and we are very lucky, yes, you're right, we are also very lucky that we live in a time, a warless time in Europe. This is also very, to be very lucky, born um, in the 50s. So to have been in this window in history, which is like, also certainly in, in Europe is more or less warless, and it's certainly warless between the East and the West. And this is also a kind of luck that you have or don't have. But in some way we are, yeah, we can choose. We are also so lucky that we can choose as we don't want to grow. We have set some limits to the size of our office, and so we can make a, a, a thorough selection of what we think is interesting and what is less interesting. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Pierre. Um, and uh, I was saying a lot of uh, architects don't uh, get as lucky as you, but of course you make the luck that you find. So as the French uh, philosopher and scientist said, 
fortune favors the prepared mind, and the architect um, gets the clients that he or she sometimes deserve. Anyway, thank you very much for being a good critic. I now thank you. turn over to Paul, who will give the awards for today. Paul. May I add my thanks uh, to you, Pierre, and also to you, for Charles, uh, for taking on um, what might have sounded like a bit of a fraught project right from the outset. I mean, role reversal is sometimes difficult. I think you both handled it with huge aplomb. We got a lovely lecture. And um, just on the subject of costs, I mean, in 10 years' time, no one will be able to remember precisely what the building costs. In 20 years' time, no one will care what it costs. And it'll be exactly like the Sydney Opera House which, let's remember, got completed as a result of a public lottery. And in other words, I think you could see a parallel between the desire of the people of Sydney to see this thing completed because somehow they knew it was important to them with the political will that's obviously informed the decision of Hamburg to proceed and to build rather than to stop and actually waste a huge amount of money rather than spending a lot of money to achieve something wonderful. Well, the final um, act on this stage is to announce today's uh, category winners. Um, and actually, if you would like to go over there, because no one needs to come up on stage, you'll all be relieved to hear. But any winners, um, please go and see uh, my colleague, because she, it, the, she has an envelope for you which contains instructions about what time you will be representing tomorrow for the shootout stage for our Best in Show award. So let's see who's won in the crit rooms today. Um, we're doing the inside categories first. The bars and restaurants. A winner, AIO, for the big small coffee and guest room in Beijing. Uh, civic Culture and Transport is Perkins and Will for the Mary Rose Museum in Portsmouth. Creative reuse is a highly commended here. Warren and Marnie Architects for this Mason Brothers interior in Auckland. Uh, but the creative use winner is Neri and Hugh Design and Research Office for the garage in Beijing. In display, we have a highly commended, which is AK Plus for the Hermes project in Singapore. Uh, but the winner is Produce Workshop for the Fabric Wood project, uh, project, also in Singapore. Uh, hotels, we just have a winner. Hypothesis for the Eron Hotel in Bangkok. And Residential, supported by Mila, also a winner. SJB for the Cleveland Rooftop in Sydney, Australia. Moving on to uh, future projects. Uh, commercial mixed use, this is also supported by Mila. Uh, and the winner, Wilkinson Air for Battersea Power Station. Uh, in culture, we've got a highly commended future projects. Right and Right Architects for the Lambeth Palace Library in London. Uh, but the winner is Swaco Architects for the Kulturkorgan, a basket full of culture in Gothenburg. 
Uh, education. We've got a highly commended Votrong Ngia architect for the Vital Academy in Hanoi. Uh, but the winner is Field and Clegg Bradley Studios and Shatoto Architecture for the Aga Khan Academy in the Dhaka, Bangladesh. Uh, house Future Projects, just a winner here. Monk Mackenzie Architects, Queenstown House, New Zealand. Master Planning Future Pro Projects, we've got a highly commended uh, O2 Design Atelier for the One Heart Foundation uh, in Kakamega, Kenya. Uh, but the winner, Australia's having a good night, Alan Jack and Cotier Architects and NH Architecture for the Sydney Fish Markets in Sydney, Australia. Residential future projects uh, supported by Grower, highly commended. Modern Office of Design and Architecture for the Village Project in Calgary. But the future projects winner is Emre Aralat Architecture for the Goksu Residences, Istanbul. And the final section, which is completed buildings. So health, we've got a highly commended here, which is Nickel and Partner Architects and for the Kaiser Franz Jovis Spital Hospital in Vienna. But the winner is Seeker Architects for the Westbury Clinic project in Johannesburg, South Africa. We've got uh, highly commended here, which is uh, Savage and Dodd Architects for the Sol Plaza University in Kimberley, South Africa. But the winner is C.F. Moller for the Maersk Tower in Copenhagen. Uh, Hotel and Leisure, supported by Grower. We've got an outright winner here. Kongsin Architects for the Vegetable Trellis Project, Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. <laughs> Mixed use is a highly commended studio architects for the Naipa Art Complex in Bangkok. The winner is Alford Hall Monaghan Morris for Westminster Bridge Road Project in London, UK. Religion. Highly commended, Fear and Hay Architects, the Bishop Selwyn Chapel in Auckland, New Zealand. But the winner is War Thistleton Architects for the Bushy Cemetery, Bushy in the United Kingdom. Shopping, highly commended, uh, Nick and Seke for Tokyo, Tokyo Plaza Ginza in Tokyo, Japan. Uh, but the winner is Acme Architects uh, for Victoria Gate. Acme from London. Transport, I highly commended Zaha Hadid Architects for the Salerno Maritime Terminal in Italy. Uh, but the winner, uh, Grunst Ernst Architects for the Transformation Chemnitz Central Station project uh, here in Germany. Villa, highly commended, EMC Architectura for the Casa Escondida in La Libertad, El Salvador. But the winner is Irving Smith Architects for Bark with Two Roofs, Golden Bay, New Zealand. 
Uh, so as mentioned, all winners, please go to the side of the stage to pick up your instructions about uh, tomorrow, and some of you have a dinner organised uh, for this evening. Um, there are a couple of events outside immediately after this. Um, the Women in Architecture reception is on the ABB Bush Yeager stand. We're presenting certificates to the category winners for the Architecture Drawing Prize, one of our innovations this year. And uh, there are drinks receptions to which all are welcome on the Gira, Mech and VMZ Zinc stands. Thank you for your attention and patience and thanks once again to Charles Jenks and Pierre de Meuron. Thank you.